All right, guys, awesome. Glad you guys are here. You guys can grab your Bibles, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And uh, if you're new with us or you're visiting, we've got a lot of friends here who are visiting. A lot of, uh, of our family members here are out doing things. But I got a couple announcements before I launch into what we're talking about. Number one, the most handsome man ever created, Trip Anderson Brooks, was born on Monday. And he's awesome. So uh, not here today. Bonnie and uh, Baby are at home doing their thing. And they'll be around at some point. And you guys can totally kiss him and just get all the germs on him so he can grow strong and healthy. Um, and then uh, also, Carson and Emily Rowley got married last night. Heck yeah, it's awesome. Uh, if you don't know who Carson is, he's like six foot five. He's ginormous. You'll know who he is, okay? And he's not here, so clearly you guys know which guy it is. But he, they got married last night up in Cook City. So two things are going to be wrong with me this morning. Number one, I had a, we had a baby, okay? So I have like... I'm sleeping, but not super great. And then I was out in Cook City until late, and then on the phone having ministry conversations and praying with some people last night. So like, if I like, if I say a couple cuss words or whatever, just like forgive me. Like I'm not who I usually am. All right. Um, so, but it's awesome. I love you guys. I love that we're a family. And when you have babies, and we all have babies and family members, it matters. And we pray for each other and be there for each other. It's just super exciting. So, hey, let me kick off some prayer, and then we're going to launch into 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We are flying through this book, and it's been exciting. Father, thank you so much that we get to be here together as your family, adopted into the family of God. And uh, we don't all know each other. We're not all from the same place. We don't all have the same moms and dads, but we had the same Savior. And uh, I know there's some friends in this room who don't know you as that just yet, and we're thankful they're here. And may this just be a time and a space where we could be real, we could be loved, and uh, we could talk about things that really matter, talk about the truth. And uh, Jesus, uh, if it's pleasing to you, we pray that everything we do will glorify you. Pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Well, hey, uh, when I was down in Dallas, Texas, I got to hear uh, a story at our staff prayer. Uh, we have, uh, at staff prayer, it was kind of weird at Watermark because there's 250 people on staff. And so we're sitting together and praying. And one day, uh, our lead pastor was like, hey, I wanna, want you guys to connect with one another, talk about you know, stories of grace and what God's done in your community groups. And so we all were circled up. And afterwards, uh, he was like, hey, you guys got to hear this story. So one of the guys on staff shared a story of a couple in their community group who um, uh, they were getting together for a community one day. It was a few years ago. And as they got together, um, the husband and his couple confessed for the first time in front of his wife and his whole community group that he had an affair, uh, which just going to go ahead and tell you, if you're in a community group right now, that's not the first place you tell your wife that, okay? You probably should not do that, all right? All right, love you, just tips. Let's just not ever have to confess that. I should also say that. Um, but so he confessed it there, and it really, like, obviously kind of blew up. And uh, she freaked out, as you can imagine. I mean, just tons of hurt, uh, tons of betrayal. And she left and soon after went and had an affair with another man. She felt like she had the right. Like, well, if you did that, I'm going to do it to you. And so she had the right, and she went and had an affair with another guy. And, uh, but problem is, she ended up getting pregnant. And so their community group were diving into this, trying to help them, trying to help navigate all these things. And you know, eventually they moved to Florida, but while they're down in Florida, like their marriage was still just crumbling. And their community group who loved them and cared for them, who were still tracking with them, uh, called and said, hey man, we think you need to come home. Come back to Dallas and let's go through, re-engage together. Let's do that. We'll do it with you. We'll all work in our marriages. We're going to track together. We love you. Let's do it. So they moved, quit their jobs, came back to Dallas to focus and work on their marriage. And so they started doing that. And uh, uh, eventually, though, God started to bring some redemption and some healing uh, in 
in ways that only God can. And, uh, and what ended up happening was uh, the husband one day felt by the Spirit that he needed to go to the man that his wife had an affair with and he needed to go have a conversation with him. And uh, some of your brains are going a direction. I promise it's not going the direction I'm about to tell you it went. He went to that man and he said, hey, can I, can I get a lunch with you? They said, okay. So they sat down and got lunch. And he sat down and he looked at this man who had an affair with his wife who is carrying that man's child. Had already had that child. He said, hey, uh, would you please forgive me for the, how I did not love my wife well and set her up in a way where she wanted to run to you to satisfy something that I broke in her? Would you please forgive me? And that guy, as you can imagine, looked at him and was like, are you kidding me? Like, I need to be asking you for forgiveness. And he's like, well, we'll get to that. And the second thing he said, he's like, here's the second request I'd like to make. Not only will you forgive me, but will you give me permission to adopt your child? Uh, I tell you that story, one, because it's a story of what God does. It's a story of what God does. When we submit our life to him, we pursue him, we say, you know what? Not my will, but Lord, your will be done. The reality is all of us in this room are sinners. We make mistakes because we're pursuing what we think we have a right to. And that man originally thought he had a right to go out and just, uh, and just uh, you know, enter into a relationship with somebody who was not his wife. And that caused a lot of pain because he was pursuing what he wanted for him. And then when she was hurt, she felt like she had the right to go out and get revenge and get him back and pursue that, which led to more pain. And finally that man realized you know what, it's not about my rights. It's about what God has done right for me and what he's made right for me and how he's forgiven me. And he began to realize that he needed to set himself aside. Today we're talking 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to talk a lot about idolatry, but really we're talking about your rights and what you think that you have a right to and how sometimes what you think you have a right to can get in the way of what God really wants to do and it actually is leading to more death and destruction and brokenness in your life than you actually getting what you want. Okay, so the need today is we need to understand that loving our brothers and sisters is more important than enjoying our rights sometimes. All right, let me tell you again, because you just, isn't it good to know where you're going, right? You like GPSs like me? You want to know where you're going? Awesome. Uh, we're going to be opening up chapter 8. In chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, all to go together. It's all about this one subject. And in chapter 8, he's going to open up with giving the principle which is basically that your brother is more important than your rights. And loving him is more important. I'm telling you what we're going to talk about. Then as we go into chapter 9, he's going to talk about his own life. And Paul's going to use his life as an illustration of what it looks like to give up what you have a right to, to love other people. And then uh, at the end of chapter 9, going to chapter 10, he's going to exhort them to flee idolatry. And then finally at the end, he's going to uh, uh, just talk to them about strategically living their life in a way that always glorifies God and everything they say and do. All right, you ready to go into this? We're kicking off this week with just chapter 8 and verse 1. Here's how we're going to break down chapter 8. Three ways, okay? Number one, love is greater than knowledge. Love is greater than knowledge. Number two, God is greater than your idols. And number three, your brother is greater than your rights. You ready to do this? Come on, y'all. You ready? Wake up. I was just talking with Addison. I was like, man, this group's tough right now. What's their deal? Need an extra cup of coffee. Well, let's go into verse one and let's see what the Lord our God who loves us has for us this morning, okay? It says this, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that 
all of us possess knowledge. And this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. All right, that's verses one through three. But in verses one through four, he has got a couple quotes in there. Hopefully you saw that, right? If you take those quotes and you put those quotes together, you kind of see what the statement is that the Corinthians wrote to Paul because they had this conflict brewing, they have this statement. So what are the quotes that he does right there? Uh, well, first he says that all of us possess knowledge. An idol has no real existence. There's no God but one. And if you put all these together, essentially what the Corinthians were saying, were like, hey, everybody knows that idols don't really exist. There's only one God. And I think we would all agree with that. And uh, really, this is two statements. And here's the thing about the Corinthians. If you've been tracking with us for a while, the Corinthians are all about what they know. If they know anything, it's that they're really smart guys, all right? They think very highly of what they know. And so Paul's kind of mocking them by quoting back. He's like, yes, all right? It's two statements. Idols don't really exist. And the second is that everybody knows. One of those is true. Paul doesn't agree that the other is true. Not everybody really knows this equally. And because not everybody really knows that Idols don't really exist or they don't really matter. It's causing some problems in Corinth. So Paul's not going to agree with them. In fact, he's going to start an argument that's saying that their knowledge is the thing that is getting in the way for their love for their brother. And so how does that happen? Okay, this happens here as well. How does this happen? First, a lot of times we will confuse our God-given identity, who we are, with what we know. But friends, the reality is you are not more valuable in the eyes of God than somebody with Down syndrome because you know things that they don't know. Do you understand that? There's nothing, there's not a verse in the Bible that says, oh, you went to seminary, so you are in the third level of heaven. You are just, you are amazing. The ground you walk on is just beautiful. There's nothing in the Bible. In fact, if you go and read the Bible, you're going to find more often than not that God does everything in spite of the fact that you don't know what you're talking about. And that's the reason why Paul says right here, he's like, look, uh, um, if anyone imagines that he knows something, verse two, he does not yo- know as he ought to know. In other words, hey, you think you've got this figured out, but bro, you don't know what you're talking about. You have no idea. Your little finite brain doesn't get it. So Paul's like, hey, calm down with your knowledge business. All right? Your bifocals aren't, aren't impressing nobody. All right? So he's gonna keep going. Second thing is, knowledge puffs up. And knowledge puffs up, and what that does is it, it, it ruins your confidence in the Lord. It crushes it, and it crushes your dependence on God. You know what I'm talking about? Where you begin to have more confidence in what you know. Like, oh, I got this. I could do this. I, I got a seminary degree, or I got my five points of Calvinism all locked and straight in order and all that stuff, right? And, and, and you lose your dependence on God. And when you lose your dependence on God, there's hardly anybody that you won't mow over with your knowledge. You ever had that happen to you? Somebody's more, they're more excited to tell you what they know than to really listen to what's really going on in your life. Or every single time that you're trying to say something, you're looking at you and you could tell looking in their eyes, they're just preparing their next statement. And so what he's trying to say is there is a difference between knowledge and making that short journey from knowledge to applying it in love. Loving and caring for others. Now here's the thing, knowledge is good. Everybody agree? All right? Knowledge is good. Let me prove it real quick. Uh, How did you learn not to touch a fire? You touched it. How'd that go for you? It sucked, right? Now you know something that's good to know. 
Isn't it good to know? Don't touch fire. You tell your kid, hey, don't touch that. That's really hot. Okay, you want to touch it? Okay. Yeah, that sucks, doesn't it? Yeah, don't do that again. Um, Knowledge is good. And Paul is not advocating for mindless obedience. He's not advocating for mindless obedience. In fact, Paul gets accused in Acts 26 of having this great knowledge from a guy named Festus. So the more you learn about God, the more you learn about the world, the more you learn about the Bible and the way the life works, it's a really good thing. You should learn. You should know. That's a great thing to do. But if it doesn't make the short journey from just knowledge to loving God, worshiping Him, and loving others, then you are nothing. In fact, later in this year, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 13. In 1 Corinthians 13, it says this. Maybe you've heard this at a wedding. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I have gained nothing. He says, you're like... Does that surprise you? When you walk up and you're like, well, I, do you know what tulip means? It's like, all right, bro. It's like, well, I want a mission trip. That's great. You're super cool, man. It's like, well, you know, we're, you know do you understand what baptism is really about? You, you, you know, you can't save you. It's like, oh, gosh, man, you're annoying. You're just a clanging symbol. And all of your knowledge is adding up to just crashing symbols. Like, you don't really love? Do you see what he's saying? You've read that, but when you hear that, it's like, even my heart rate's like, ah. It scares you. And it's like, one of those, it's, like, it's not helpful, man. It's not helpful. Knowledge without love, he says, it puffs up. Knowledge without love, he's saying, just makes you a windbag. All right? Like, when you take your wife or your girlfriend on a date, you want to take her to a place where they're playing, like, saxophone Kenny G, not something like this. Didn't even work. All right? You don't take her to a place like that. You're like, that's a windbag. If you want to woo that girl with something sweet, it's just Kenny G, right? That's what you want to do. That's, at least that's not what I want to do. That also is distracting. I say that, guys, to make light of something that is ultimately true. You may be filled with all kinds of great theologies. You may have all your points in order, but... Do you love your neighbor? I don't mean in just in your head and your heart, but does it see it in your hands? You may know what your community group really needs. You know what they need. But do you actually uh, take the time? Are you willing to meet them in their time of need? 11 o'clock at night when they're calling you and asking for prayer. You may know what your spouse needs to do, but are you ready to lovingly listen to them as they pour out their heart to you? seeing past some of the initial words to hear what's going on beyond. Man, you may know that you are saved by grace, but do you realize that you only know that because God loves you and he's made that known to you? The mystery of the gospel is that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of you alone, the glory of God alone. And the only reason that you and I know that is the spirit of God has made that known to us not because we've attained to some spiritual knowledge. It's by the grace of God. In fact, we were utterly lost in darkness until Jesus sent 
or God sent Jesus, the light of the world, right, to bear witness and show us the way. Praise be to Jesus that a bunch of puffed up windbags who think they got it all straight, he's patient with us. He doesn't just love us in word or talk, but indeed in truth, he steps onto the earth and steps into our lives and says, let me love you with his hands. So what Paul's doing here is, you know, there's a saying, sometimes the long way around is the quickest way home. Paul's trying to answer a question that they have about idolatry, and he's starting with a distant principle. And the first principle is this, is that love is greater than knowledge. Don't care about, you know, we, we used to say this to my youth leaders all the time. Kids don't care about how much you know until they know how much you care. I think it's true. Love is more important than knowledge. When I was on a hike, uh, I was in college. Uh, I took this, I was an outdoor leadership major, which I was just a, like a hippie little kid who thought that was cool. Um, and so I ended up taking this course and there was this guy named Nanner who's on the trip. Long story. Uh, but uh, on the trip, I remember we were walking and I was, I was reading a book on the trip. It's a 16 day backpacking trip and we're, you know, we're hiking, whatever. And I, I was just talking about this book and, and he goes, he said something about like, he's like, man, you need to stop reading so much books and you probably should memorize scripture. You don't know Romans 6.23? And it was just like, right? Like, dang, bro. I'd rather you just listen to me and hear my heart and love me on this trail rather than course correct me in the woods because I could kill you out here and nobody would know. <laughs> love is always greater than knowledge. And by it, we are known by God and we're transformed to lovingly build up our brothers and sisters. So this leads us to our next point. God is greater than your idols. God is greater than your idols. Let's look at four, verse four together, okay? It says this, therefore, as to the, eat, the eating of food offered to idols, let's get to it, he says. We know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there are maybe so-called gods in heaven or on earth, and as indeed there are many, quote-unquote, gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Verse 7, however... Not all possess this knowledge, but some through their former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. So after establishing the main point that love is greater than knowledge, he's moving on to really what's a sub point in life. If you get this, then okay, we can move on to talking about this idol thing. And the idol issue first off is that they don't really exist, right? And we all agree. The, the idols don't really exist. But in Corinth and all over the Greco-Roman world, they had these temples that had these carven images uh, that were two gods, right? So the god of the harvest, the god of the hunt, the god of fertility, the god of the seas, all right? And as silly as that might be to us in the 21st century, uh, let's sympathize with our Corinthian brothers just for a few minutes, okay? First, these are real human beings and they're just as smart as you are. In fact, they might be smarter than you. They're just as smart. So let's not play intellectual arrogance across time. They're smart people. Uh, and, and so uh, uh, if we're honest, everyone in this room, including the Corinthians, they knew that there's meaning to this life. Would we not agree? You wouldn't be here if you didn't think there was real meaning in life. There's meaning to this world. But also we know that everything that we see and everything that's begun to exist had to have a cause. There's a re there, something caused all this to happen. And not only that, but looking at the way things that were caused, things aren't kind of chaotic. There's a lot of design to this world, is there not? 
And so if there's design, it points to the fact that there's a designer. Somebody has designed this world. So it's the cosmological and the teleological army. And now that sounds really fancy, but really it's basic. In your gut, you know this. From the staunch atheist, right, to the devoted Christian, we know that there's meaning. We know something brought this about. And somebody's designed this thing. And the Corinthians understood that, and they saw that as well. They knew. Now, if we believe this, then so do the Corinthians. And these people were just as smart as you and I. We've already established that. But they were ignorant to the truth that there is one God who is above all gods, the Father through whom we are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. But however, not all understood this knowledge. Not everybody got it. Not everybody realized uh, that there is only one God, and they believed in this pantheon of gods. And so what they would do is they thought that they had to make this sacrifice, they had to pay this homage, they had to eat this food, and if they did that, they would receive what they need or wanted. And this is where you and the Corinthians are very closely related, because the Corinthians had needs and wants just like you you and I. And they were really powerful needs and wants. Things like food. Right? They need food. And, uh, but they also knew that their lives were desperately dependent on rain to come and water the ground to grow up their food, right? And that's kind of a vulnerable dependence. For you, it's like, I need the truck to show up to Albertsons and be unloaded so I can get my gluten-free bread. Right? And if those trucks don't show up, you're going to be like, well, what are we going to do? If the rain doesn't show up, it's like the truck's not showing up. And there's like a desperation. How long are you going to look at your kids starve before you start saying, I'll make any sacrifice. I'll do whatever I can, whatever you need, but please bring the rain. And so they were like, man, there's got to be meaning. There's something that's caused this. Somebody's bringing the rain. There's something out there doing this. And we don't know who it really is, but uh, we're going to make these sacrifices that they might come. So really, these, these idols were meant to serve them. And if I do this, it obligates that God to do this for me. But they were coming from very real needs. Like think about the mother, right, who has, she's been barren. She hasn't had any kids. And there's no in vitro. There's no doctors. She's getting desperate. She sees her friends who have a son. And she wants to have a son too. And now their sons are getting older. And, and she's like, is this ever going to happen? And how long before she's finally going to go to the God of fertility and say, like, I need help. And she's going to make that sacrifice. She's going to pay that homage. She's going to eat that food. She's going to bow down to it. Friends, when desire and longing combined with desperation and control come together in sinners like me and you, idolatry is born. Let me say that again. You've got to understand this. When desire and longing, God-given desires and longing, combined with desperation and control come together in sinners, idolatry is born. We begin to look for ways that we can meet that need and look for something to happen. Sacrifices are made Rituals are performed, food is eaten, all for the hopes that those very real, God-given desires, longings, and needs will be met. And it's the same with us. Like how many of us, our stories are littered with the scars of sacrifices we've made for something that we thought we really needed or wanted? How many of you have bitterness in your lives because of failed rituals? The culture said if you do this, you'll get this, and you didn't get it. How many of us, are, our lives are kind of broken from the things that we've taken into our life, thinking they're going to bring hope and peace, and all they did was destroy us and our families? Guys, we're no different than the Corinthians. We're just like them. They just went and looked in the wrong places. For me, it was, this sounds silly to you, this is, it was rock climbing. 
for about five years of my life, I was like full-fledged just a, uh, worshiping the, the God of rock climbing. And what's really funny about rock climbing is it really is images of stone. And I would go bow down before them while I put my climbing shoes on. And then I would work like crazy to try to ascend to the top of them and get to the top. And every time you get to the top of a climb, there's just a little bit of joy. Like, I did it. I, I made this climb. But when you're sitting up there on top, you would see the next boulder like, all right, now I got to climb that one. And if you don't know anything about climbing, climbing is actually broken down into grades of difficulty from 1 to 16. And so you could constantly try to ascend this ladder. And as you ascended that ladder, it showed how strong you were. And for me, I had a deep hunger and yearning to be appreciated, to be valued, to be seen as significant. And I thought if I climbed this ladder of grades, I'd be loved more. I'd be respected more. And then because humans are the way they are, there's this website called 8a.nu. And if you got on there, you could load up your climbs, the things that you've climbed, and they'll take your top 10 climbs. They assign points to them, and then you see how you rank in the world. It's like an addict's nightmare. But here's the thing that it did to my life. Climbed a lot of boulders, got to see a lot of places. It's actually the reason I ended up in Cody in a weird, selfish way. But here's the thing. This is what it did. It, uh, it enslaved me. It distracted me. And uh, it separated me. It enslaved me because it became all I thought about. I would go out there and I'd climb. I'd come back and I would, I would load things up. I would watch videos on climbs. I would dream about the places I wanted to go. All right? It distracted me from the mission that God wanted to have me on. Instead of my mission being I want to be and make fully devoted followers of Christ, like we say at Outpost, we want to be, my goal is I want to be the best climber I can be. Why? For me. And it separated me. It separated me from my wife. It became a huge, huge, literal stumbling block between me and her because I was more in love with myself through climbing than I was with my wife. And I wasn't willing to sacrifice it when she would bring it up. All I tried to do was rope her into trying to be a climber with me so we could do this together, baby. And that's what idolatry does. Now, here's the thing I began to realize. If you go to verse 7, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through the former association with idols, eat food is really offered to an idol. And their conscience being weak is defiled. And I think this leads me to believe that idols don't really exist, but what Paul's kind of saying is they do have real power, though. Idols don't really exist, but they do have real power. They really have real power to enslave you to a desire for approval, sex, achievement, love, and make you do things and make sacrifices and pay homage to things that are ultimately just going to enslave you even more. They're going to they're distract you from your real purpose. They're going to distract you from God and Yahweh and how he's meant to be your provider and your hope and your friend. Our desire for a life of meaning can be real and good, but often it distracts us from the meaning that Jesus wants to give you, which is to know and love him. And it can separate you not only from God, but it separates you from others. Some of you guys know this, right? Your story tells this story. So the thing you got to realize is that God is greater than your idols. There is no God but one. His name is Jesus. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's for him that we are created. It's for him that we exist. Colossians 1, 15 through 17 says this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn among all creation. For by him are all, thing, all things were created in heaven and in earth, visible and in, invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. 
So where rock climbing and money and careers fall short, God never does. Have you realized that? Where the culture makes promises that can't be met, God has never uh, uh, made a promise that he has not kept. Never once. Your spouse and your friends will let you down, but God never will. He was and is and is to come. There's nothing that he cannot do. There's nothing that he does not know. There's nothing that he cannot bring about in your life. There's no control that he does not have. He has all the control that you want. He's the God of the harvest. He's the God of the womb. He's the God of love. He's the God of peace, hope, and joy that you've been searching for in all the wrong places. For him and through him and to him are all things. And you were built to know him and be known by him. And all of your joy can be found in Jesus and Jesus alone. Let me just tell you that. Hear my voice, but hear God talking to you. He is greater than your idols that you're bowing down to. And so guys, I appeal to you as a living sacrifice, present your body to him. It's your spiritual worship. Man, don't be conformed to this world and its idea of cultures and its gods, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, by getting into the word, so you might know that God really is perfect and good and worth following. He's the end of all the means. He's not a means to your end like the rest of your idols and your gods. You were built to know him. And when we begin to understand the truth, this truth, and use it, um, we begin to love our brothers and sisters a lot better. Because this is what happens, okay? Uh, I do this all the time because I'm a selfish sinner, all right? And uh, so welcome. If that's not you, then I don't know why you're here. Uh, here's the thing is, I use people for my own gain all the time. I'll use God for my own gain all the time. But when I begin to realize that God is greater than everything else and he's the end of the road, he is what I want to be, he is who I want to love, he is who I want to know, then you're no longer an obstacle in my way. Do you understand that? My friends are not obstacles. But if your whole life is about you and what you want and you desire, then you're the real idol. And everybody in your life is going to be either something that you could use to get more of what you want or an obstacle in the way. And you've got to either remove them or suck the life out of them. Some of you experience this because you've been used and abused. You've been, you've been pushed off to the side. Some of you, you're doing the same thing to others because you're the idol in your life. And that's exactly what Paul is going to address next. All right? God is greater than your idols, and you need to know, love, and trust that. But your brother is greater than your rights. You understand? Your brother is greater than your rights. Verse 8. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food as offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if, I, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. All right, now to really understand what's going on here, you need to understand uh, idol worship and eating meat and all that stuff in Corinth. So understand this. Um, uh, what they would do is kind of like if you know anything about the Jews in the Old Testament is they would come to these temples and they would give a living sacrifice. They would, uh, whether it be a goat, a cow, or something like that, and they would sacrifice it outside of the temple. Then what they would do with that meat, they would do two things. Either they would uh, uh, eat it, or they would sell it to somebody who would then sell it at the market, all right? That's, we're going to address that in chapter 10 a little, more, a little bit more. But they would sell it in the market, okay? So those are kind of the two things that would happen. Now, 
how they would eat this is also the question we need to ask. Okay, so what did that look like to eat this food in the temple? What was that like? Well, on one side of the spectrum, eating this food was a manner of worship to the God of that idol. Do you understand? It was a part of worship, similar to the way that we do communion. It's a reminder, a spiritual reminder for worship of Christ and remembering what he's done for us. So if you take it in that way, it's worship. But also on the other side of the spectrum, there were temples where eating meat was like going to a restaurant in these temples. There's not really a spiritual aspect. It's like meat was available and you could come in and you could pay and you could eat. It was like that. So in chapter eight, that's more of what Paul is addressing, right? He says in there, like if you, uh, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, you're, it's more of a social thing. But apparently some of the brothers who understood that idols aren't real, they were enjoying this social time. They're just eating together and getting meat. Meat was a hard thing to come by. The wealthy really could be the only ones doing it. So imagine this you know, poor guy who's a part of the church who used to worship idols. He's walking by and he's seeing these rich brothers up there eating and laughing and <laughs> doing their thing. But for him, he doesn't just see them just socially gathering he sees them worshiping idols, and that's what he was saved out of. For him, it's a stumbling block. And Paul's going to say two things. One, he's like, for you guys who are up there, yeah, you have the right to do that because these idols aren't really real. This meat, it's just meat. Eat it. He said, but here's the thing. Though you know that, what if that thing is getting in the way for your brother who's outside on the street walking by? Do you realize that it's hurting his heart? Are you willing to let that go for the sake of him? Now, some of you are like, I will never stop eating meat. I don't care who you are. Right? Some of y'all are thinking that. Stop eating meat for the rest of my life. Are you crazy? I don't care. Man, move on to another church, man. You don't have to, you don't have to look. Keep walking. But what Paul's trying to showcase, guys, is that our brothers are far more important than our freedom to be able to eat meat. So much more free. And it's better that we love them and give up the meat for the sake of our brother. In a lot of ways, this is what the mask deal was about last year. Some of you are like, oh, it's just a political thing. I was like, no, 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 your heart does not love your brother. I'm not making a stance on masks. If you want to go toe-to-toe with me, we'll go. I'll take you to Romans uh, 12 through 14. We'll, we'll do this, man. But I'm telling you right now, end of the day, you are more in love with yourself and your freedom to wear your, not wear your mask than where to love your brother. Great friend who I, I know and love, I saw him do this. I was at an event, and this is very post-mask time, and he was sitting at a table. It was a large event, a lot of guys, and we're all sitting at a table. And he, keeps, he was keeping one in his back pocket because he lives in Dallas and there's a lot of people who are, you know, it's not Cody, let's just say that. And uh, he's sitting at this table and one of the guys who's part of his church is sitting at the table and he's wearing a mask. And so he sits down next to this guy and he says, hey, um, would it make you more comfortable if I wore this mask? He kept it in his back pocket. And the guy said, no, 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 you're good. And he said, okay. That's my buddy Connor just saying, hey, I'm willing to sacrifice anything to love you. It ain't about the mask. It's about you, brother, and I love you. And in your head, you got all kinds of Republican memes going on, all right? I understand that. But Jesus didn't die for the, for the Republican Party. He died for sinners like us. And our God gave up incredible rights that you might have the right to enter into his presence. So if you're looking for an example, what's the greatest example to look at? So look at Jesus. Jesus gave up godhood. He gave up heaven. 
He took the form of a man like us. He put on this stuff, flesh bag, and he came and he walked among us and he lived us, he breathed our air, smelled the things we smelled, endured the heat, endured the cold, ate this food that we have to eat, and he was just here, one of us, just among us, sympathizing with us and our weaknesses. But he didn't just stop there. He kept going and he became a servant even of us, setting aside even more rights and saying, you know what, I don't need all those things because I love you and I care for you. And you know what, like I know servants wash feet, but let me wash your feet. I don't I know I have the right to have my feet washed, but let me wash yours because I love you. And he didn't stop there. Then he got, he got wrongly accused and he got wrongly tried and then he got wrongly crucified so that you might have the stumbling block of sin removed. No, so that you might have the great chasm that divides you and God able to be crossed, to set you free. And you won't wear a mask. You won't set aside the meat. You won't go over and talk to your neighbor. There's so many things that you're saying, nah, I'm not gonna do that. You know, I need me some me time. Your children are tired of your me time. Your wife is tired of your me time. Set aside your right. Go to bed tired, dads. Sleep hard. Wake up. Get after it again. We set aside our rights because our God set aside his rights for us. So number one, you need to understand that. The last thing I want you to understand is, uh, man, this ruthless pursuit of idolatry and things that you're chasing. In Acts chapter 17, Paul comes to this place called Athens. And Athens, it's like the, the intellectual epicenter of, of uh, the, uh, the Greco-Roman world. And so he gets there and he's hanging out and, and he sees like there's this forest of idolatry. Basically, thousands of options of things you can worship and you could you know, bow down to that you could make sacrifices to in hopes of getting something back for your life, right? Tons and tons of options. And as he's going around the city, he finally comes across one, right? This platform that's got no idol on it, no like image, and it says what? To the unknown God. Now you think that's silly, but when Paul gets up to the Areopagus, he understands something that the, that the uh, Athenian people admitted that you still don't understand that you need to admit. He gets up there to this place. It's like the TEDx place of, uh, of, of Athens. And he gets there and he goes, hey, I can see in every way you guys are very religious. In other words, what he's saying is like, look, I can see in every way by all of your idols, you guys are really looking. You're trying to find something to fill that hole. You're trying to fill, find something that satisfies. I noticed you have uh, this little plaque that says to, it's on his description. It says to an unknown God. I'd like to tell you about that God. Let me tell you something. Americans, you are full of thousands and thousands of options that are trying to sell you a bill of goods that are a lie. And you need to realize what the Athenian people realize is like, man, none of this satisfies, but there's got to be something out there. There's got to be something out there. If that's you wondering, you're here today, and you've just been trying everything, man. You're trying out sex and alcohol and, and drugs and, and your Instagram game and sports and jobs and making more money and maybe if I own more things and if my kids were better at sports and, or they could sing better or if they had better academics. And you're just trying out everything in the world and nothing seems to satisfy. Your heart right now is screaming out, there's something out there. There's something out there, and I'm telling you right now, here today in Cody, Wyoming, there's one God, the Father, by whom and through whom all things exist. And you exist for him. And your heart is only meant to be satisfied by him. And when it's satisfied by him, everything in your life comes into 2020 vision. You begin to see each other in a way that is beautiful. You're able to love, extend grace and kindness because you understand the grace and kindness of this God who you've never known, who knows you and loves you. My prayer is that we be a church who lives that way, who will set aside any right so that we might love one another.
not sin against them and our Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you would uh, step down out of glory to enter into a dark world, to be a blazing, shining light of love and grace and mercy to us. Here in Cody, Wyoming, we have people from all over who are still walking in darkness. I pray by the power of your spirit, we would set aside any right that we think we have. Our right to camp, our right to work those extra days, the right to have our me time, our right to just relaxation. We say we'd hold them all with open hands and say, God, how can we use any and all of these things to love and serve our brother? I pray that our rights would not become our idol. God, forgive me for the ways that I've just bowed down and worshiped things that aren't you this past week. When I watched too many shows rather than spending time with my family. When I spent too much time looking on Instagram rather than talking to my wife before bed. Jesus, I pray for this group of family that we would be known for our love for one another. And God, may we be glorified and praised.